Genesis chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. It's not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after the Lord had parted with him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. Morning, guys. It's good to see you this morning. Um, in case you haven't met, bef- met me before, uh, let me just quickly introduce myself. My name is Micah. I've been at the Gate Church uh, since it's uh, since day one, uh, since it was born. So it's lovely to be here with you, and it's a real encouragement to open God's Word with you. Um, shall I pray for us before we start, and then we'll dig in? Uh, Father, please, would you open our eyes and our hearts so that as we hear a story that is uh, thousands of years old um, and is uh, in, in many ways removed from our experience and um, our, our, our context, but, um, but is also deeply important to us who live here in Birmingham uh, and, and to, to all of us who, who struggle uh, to find life and faith uh, in the desert. Uh, Father, please work in us by your spirit this morning and please uh, transform us uh, today. Amen. So uh, I think one of the biggest ways that our generation has changed, and, and maybe it's one thing that we might quite easily take for granted in today's day and age, is, is how mobile we are as a culture. Um, how easy it is for us to just kind of pack our bags and just move from wherever we are to wherever we want to go. Like, it could be down the road, it could be to a different city, it could be to a totally different country and continent. Uh, that might have seemed impossible and unthinkable for most of history. But today, it's really just quite normal, isn't it? The idea that we can just up sticks and move our life to a new place with a new people, it might, it might kind of seem like a hassle. Um, moving house is difficult, but it is pretty normal. 
actually just within this church and within the people here, there's, there's a whole load of us who've arrived here from somewhere really different. Whether it's a, a quiet countryside in the south of England or a, a busy city in Southeast Asia or um, from, uh, from various parts of um, the US, there's so many of us that are living proof that it is easier than ever today for us to just move home. But at the same time, while it's, it's never been easier for us to do that, for us to move home, it's probably also true that if there were ever a generation that didn't feel at home in the place where they found themselves, it's probably us. Uh, perhaps actually those of you who've come here from overseas to live um, here in the sunny second city probably feel that more, more acutely uh, than, than many, of, many of us. That kind of tension between where, where you know and where you are. I can imagine that actually that must be a really difficult experience, and I'm really grateful to have all of you guys here with us. Uh, but it might surprise you that kind of geographical wandering aside, the, the feeling of being disconnected from where you are, the feeling of being out of place in the world around you, it's, it's not actually a new feeling. In fact, you could kind of tell the story of the Bible as the story of a homeless people, a, a people who are out of place with the world around them, finding their true home, their true home in God. So actually, in fact, as we cast our minds back to the story of Abraham, uh, just up to this point um, in our series in Genesis, this is, this is exactly what we see. Uh, Abraham and his household, which it's not just him and his wife, but also kind of like staff and servants and extended family. You've got like his nephew Lot, who we see this chapter. They've responded to God's call on their life, and they've responded with faith to this crazy-sounding command to leave their old home with all of its security, to leave their old ways with kind of all the familiarity of the relationships that they've established, to leave their old gods and shrines, and to follow the one true God into the desert in order to find future blessing. On the way, they, they experience quite a few setbacks and challenges, and, and many of those, it feels like most of those so far have just been down to th their own fault, really, hasn't it? Um, and that's where we've got to. And, this, and it's also where we're beginning this week. Some of you who've been around for a little while might have noticed that where we started, there's a bit of overlap between where I started this morning and where Johnny ended his sermon uh, last week. Uh, that's not an accident. It's not because we forgot to communicate or anything like that. Um, it's, it's deliberate. Uh, Johnny, Johnny wanted you guys to know last week that no matter what kind of stupidity, what kind of cowardice, what kind of faithlessness we might bring to the table, there is grace available for you and for me. But I think it's also really important to, to see today that all the good that we see in people like Abraham, all the great examples of faith that we can follow, all of those are a result of God's transforming grace. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, there's rarely kind of like a, a point where the narrator kind of butts into the story and tells you what's good and what's bad and who did right and who did wrong. Uh, they, what, they, what they tend to do is they set you up with a comparison. Um, so somebody is a warning, somebody who did it wrong, and somebody who's an example, somebody who did it right. And I think it's really interesting that in this series, the first comparison that the narrator gives us, that Moses gives us, uh, the first comparison to Abram is Abram. 
as we, as we read his story this morning, it's not, it's not simply about somebody who kind of stands above us and he kind of is the sort of person who wonders why kind of the little people like us just can't help but make such stupid decisions. Abraham's story is one of being turned around by the grace and the mercy of God and being transformed into a man of real and living and powerful faith. And so he's got to this point in our story in spite of many challenges. And many of them, like I said, are his own doing. But today he faces a new challenge. And on the face of it, this might seem like the, kind of the Bronze Age equivalent of a, a bit of a first world problem, mightn't it? Abraham and his nephew Lot are too wealthy. Uh, like I said, it, it sounds like one of those problems that is, is quite, quite nice to have, isn't it? Oh, no, I'm too wealthy. Uh, the, thing is, the thing is that when all of the wealth, all of that wealth, all that material blessing that you've got is tied up in things that you really need to keep alive, things like sheep and cows and livestock, then the kind of problem that Abraham and Lot are facing, it, the, the one we see in our chapter, it could be potentially disastrous, couldn't it? Um, a few people here are from farming stock, I think, or at least kind of grew up around a lot of farmers. And let me tell you, the ones that I've, the ones that I've spoken to, their hometowns are beautiful. Like, they're really lovely to look at. Um, and there's a reason for that, isn't there? You see, deciding to be a, a farmer in the desert, it's not, it's not really just a death sentence for your career, is it? Uh, for, for Abraham, it could also it could be a death sentence for you as well, couldn't you? And so we've got this problem. Abraham and Lot not only have to work out how to generate enough food in quite an inhospitable environment to feed everyone, but suddenly also their greatest competition is with one another within the family. And once again, we see what looks like the promises of God to Abraham and his household to be a great nation have come under threat again, not only by scarce resources, but also, as, just as a household of Abraham, the household of faith is in real danger of being torn apart. So the question is, what is Abraham going to do? The one who was described by Johnny last week as a scheming little man. What's his plan today? And here comes God's transforming grace in action in Abraham's surprising choice. You see, the first thing that Abraham chooses is not to choose. As an ancient head of a kind of large and wealthy household, Abraham, by custom, he would have chosen first, wouldn't he? But instead, he lets go of that right. He chooses instead to give first choice to his nephew, one who is not only younger than him, but I think it seems like he's less wealthy than him. His status is lower. Abraham's decision is not just culturally surprising, it, just, it also just wouldn't hold up in a business meeting as being a good decision, would it? If Lot has less cattle than Abraham, it stands to reason that he has less need of good pasture land than Abraham does. Quite simply, Abraham has more mouths to feed than Lot does, and yet he's willing to hand over first place in the first come, first serve buffet rather than risk dividing the people of God. Isn't that, isn't that a 180 to what we saw last week in the behavior of Abraham? Now Lot, on the other hand, he doesn't seem too keen to make the same business mistakes as his uncle. He looks around, 
quite literally, it says he lifts up his eyes. Uh, remember that phrase. We'll come back to it in a minute. Um, he lifts up his eyes, and he sees land that was, according to verse 10, well-watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Lot sees somewhere that reminds him of paradise. You can actually see that in this, uh, this little satellite photo that um, you might recognize from Google Maps. So, so this is kind of the, if you can see my little red pot, red pointer in the top right corner, this is kind of roughly where they were. And this is what the land of Egypt looked like. So you can see there's a significant difference between uh, where they were and what this place looks like. Um, and Lot makes this decision that looks at first glance like the most reasonable and the most sensible one, doesn't it? One that any farmer in their right mind is going to make. But actually, I think we're going to see, in reality, it's a deeply dangerous decision for two reasons. Firstly, because Lot's departure from Abraham is a departure from the household of faith. It's a departure from the family of God, from the people that own the very promises of God himself. It's a future direction planned out by what might feel reasonable and sensible, but is nonetheless a direction away from the call of God. One writer said of of Lot's decision, Lot was the kind of man who would certainly choose heaven over hell if given the choice, but not heaven over earth. And on top of this, as if, if this reason wasn't enough, the narrator steps in at this point. Remember earlier on I, I said that he doesn't really do this and you don't really see this much in the Old Testament. Um, they didn't really feel the need to comment on whether things were good or bad. But in, in verse 13, Moses decides to make an exception. And I think if, if this is a moment worthy to Moses of making an exception, it should be worthy of our, our attention, shouldn't it? We do well to listen. Verse 13 says, Now the people of Sodom, that's who else lives in the land that Lot chooses, they were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Lot's decision might look wise, but the folly of his decision is that he's chosen to make his home where the people who are opposed to God and are inviting his judgment. As as uncomfortable as it might be at this point, I think it is still really important for us to ask ourselves a question. Where might you and me Where might we be in danger of drifting in that same direction as Lot? What might feel reasonable and sensible according to the claims and the ways of the world, but in reality stands opposed to God and his ways? I mean, there might be many, I think. There might be as many as there are people in this room, but I think there's one example that that strikes out to me as being particularly clear. It's becoming an increasingly normal thing to hear that God has nothing to say whatsoever about what goes on in our relationships. How me and my partner, how me and my, and my boyfriend or girlfriend use our bodies is nobody's business but mine and theirs. And it's not only an incredibly common thing to hear, but the, the Bible's message about sex and relationships and, and sex belonging to the context of marriage is, is increasingly considered to be quite harmful, isn't it? But here's the thing. The world says this with a loud enough and a consistent enough voice that it begins to feel reasonable over time. But not only does God's word speak quite clearly on this matter, 
We can find example after example of this message being incredibly destructive. Not just to our relationships, but to our very selves. We mustn't, be, we mustn't be naive to the danger of this narrative becoming increasingly normalized in the life of the people of God. You see, Lot has made a decision based on what he could see and what felt reasonable, what felt sensible. But his failure lies at ignore, on his ignoring what God has said. But this is where Abram's story picks up. You see, like I mentioned earlier, Abram could have asserted his right as the head of the family to have first dibs on what, where, wherever they were going to move. In that culture, it wouldn't have just been normal. It would have been expected for him to do just that. But God has transformed him from the scheming little man of chapter 12 to the generous and sacrificial one that we meet in chapter 13 today. He's gone from sacrificing others to save himself to sacrificing what could be his for the sake of others. And not, not to mention that, in contrast a lot, from the perspective of this world, Abraham's decision looks like lunacy, doesn't it? It, it, it? it just takes a glance between where Lot ends up and Abraham settles to tell us where we would probably prefer to save, to raise our livestock. So this is Lot on the right-hand side, um, and this is where Abraham roughly ends up. It, it doesn't, but the thing is, Abraham's decision is the fruit of a relationship with the God who is faithful to his promises. He doesn't need to settle anywhere else, no matter how tempting, if he has a promised land that belongs to him. Once again, Lot has made a decision based on what he can see, but Abraham has made his decision based on what God has promised him. Abraham is free to hold loosely to other offers of security, if he's got a tight grip on the promises of God. And I think the truth is that for most of us, we're tempted to try and hedge our bets, aren't we? We can be tempted to try and keep one foot in the promised land, and so to speak, whilst whilst having our foot in any number of other places that try and sell security outside of the promises of God. And in reality, we... They don't have to look like Sodom and Gomorrah, do they? They don't have to be bad things. These these could be good things that we've elevated to a position of eternal significance. Maybe it's a home. Isn't the perfect home something that can be so easily put on a pedestal? This pedestal of eternal significance. Isn't Isn't it tempting to see it as something that is mine? So that God doesn't have the right to speak into how I use it. Rather than seeing it as a blessing from God, that just like his blessing to Abraham, is given so that it can be used to bless others. Or could it be in our relationships? Uh, For those of us who are in our church family who are single, have you been told the myth that true happiness comes from a fulfilling romantic relationship? And if that's the case, are you tempted to maybe overlook some of the potential red flags in a boyfriend or in a girlfriend's spiritual life because the promises of the fulfilling romantic relationship ring louder than the promises of a healthy discipleship and a close and sweet relationship with the God who made you? Or for those of us who are in romantic relationships, 
especially for those of us who are married, are we perpetuating that myth? Have we inadvertently made single brothers and sisters feel like second-class citizens who don't and can't experience the same level of closeness with another person that you do and you can? The thing is, I don't think these things need to be explicitly said to be believed. They're so baked into our culture, aren't they, that it's almost invisible and almost impossible to challenge. Homes and relationships and marriages, they're not Sodom and Gomorrah. They're good gifts. They're blessings. But if we, if we stop seeing ourselves as being blessed so that we can be a blessing to others, we can become dangerously close to making those things into what they aren't into an end in themselves, into our ultimate security, into our forever home. For us, uh, just as for Lot, we're actually in danger, aren't we, of trading earth for heaven. And I think, I think that the narrator is actually pretty quick to show us the result of Abraham's decision because it's, it's almost as if he doesn't want us to be in any doubt that placing your faith in the promises of God, even when you can't see what, what's going to come out of it, is always the safest option. It's always the safest option. See, in, like, in the flow of the story, Abraham isn't actually left alone for a moment, is he? The moment Lot leaves for his new home, God draws near. And he speaks to Abraham. Look around, he says, or literally, lift up your eyes. Remember that bit? from verse 10. Look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the land, the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Do you recognize those words? They kind of sound similar, don't they, to, to, the ones that we, to the promise that we heard a few weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 12. But it's, it's, it's almost as if like God has turned them up to 11, hasn't he? Abraham steps out in faith, and the faithful and true God immediately reestablishes his promises to him. And from God's side, they've never been in any doubt. But isn't it, isn't it such a kindness from God? that from Abraham's perspective, they've been amplified. In chapter 12, Abraham's going to be made into a great nation with a great name, and he will be blessed in order to be a blessing to others. Now in chapter 13, Abraham is given land that stretches as far as he can see in every direction. It's almost global in its scale, isn't it? It's not only going to be a great nation, but his offspring will be as numerous as the dust on the earth. And that those blessings that the previous chapter were just for his offspring are now for him as well. And God even says, doesn't he? He says, go, have a walk around. Take it all in. You heard my promises and you believe them. See it. Isn't it wonderful that the more trust we place in God, the more he shows himself to be trustworthy. Of course, he was never untrustworthy, was he? It's never untrustworthy to begin with, but when you put yourself in his hands is when you begin to discover just how capable they are, just how strong they are. And here's, here's the other result of Abraham's faith. 
And honestly, I think this, this is just awesome. In verse 5, Abraham and Lot are described as kind of moving about. They're, they're wanderers. They're, 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 not, they're not just nomads. They're like spiritually and physically homeless. Verse 12 is the first time since Abraham has begun his journey out of a pagan land that he's been described as living anywhere. For the first time ever, Abraham is no longer a wanderer. He's found his home. In verse 18, Abraham goes to live by these great trees in a place called Mamre, and he stays there for decades. In the book of Genesis, being, being a, a restless wanderer is, is, not, is not just describing a physical experience, but a spiritual one. Those are actually the words that you'll see in chapter 4 of Genesis, where Cain calls himself a restless wanderer just after he experiences judgment from God. But Abraham, putting his trust in the promises of God, is how he finds his home. I said at the beginning, I don't know if I know of a generation before us that has struggled as much as we do to feel at home. We can hear it, actually, in the language that we use to describe our, our forever home. The, uh, the house that we're going to buy, that's going to be ours forever. It's going to look like what we want it to look like. But I think that what God wants to say to us this morning in this, in this passage is, that is not your forever home. God alone brings a lasting home. We need to listen to him if we want rest from our wanderings. And both Abraham and Lot choose a place to live, but as we're going to see in a, in a few weeks' time, Lot's experience is never settled. It's never secure. As good as it looked, it was never secure. Only God could bring the secure and the lasting home that we crave. And it, can be, it can be so tempting kind of to, to hear this story and to feel a kind of certain level of detachment from it. After all, we're talking about a Bronze Age kind of shepherd and pastoralist who lived about 4,000 years ago on the other side of the world to us, from a different culture. And maybe there's lessons in this story for Abraham and for people like him. But isn't it a bit of a stretch to imagine that there's things for us too? But actually, I think that if we pay attention to this story, we'll quickly see that there are so many ways that we're like Abraham, and there's so many ways that we're unlike him. And, and there's important things we can learn from both. You see, like Abraham, Abraham finds his home and settles there. But his settling is still in a tent. His settling is still in a wilderness environment. His settling is still resting on a future promise. Uh, we've heard these verses from the New Testament quite a few times so far in the series, but they're so important in helping us to understand what Abraham's faith looked like. It says, by faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You see, like Abraham, we sit in both the now and the not yet, you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, and you have your home perfectly secure with your heavenly Father today. But so often we find ourselves in the desert, and Abraham is a vital teacher for us if we look around and we still don't feel at home. Abraham looked around, and all he could see 
was dust. But he had the eyes of faith that enabled him to see that the dust that, he could, that was around him was more like a trailer for the generations of the future family and the blessing that would one day uh, come to him. But we're also unlike Abraham in a really important way. See, what do these promises hinge on for Abraham? They hinge on a son who's not yet arrived. Abraham receives these promises as a 75-year-old man, a similar-aged wife. They've got no children between them. And God says that these promises that he's given to Abraham are going to be fulfilled in his offspring. Is he kidding? We'll see, actually, as we go forward, that this promise is still a really difficult one for Abraham to believe as we continue in the series, especially as years turn into literal decades and there's still no son. So while our experience is like Abraham's in a really important way, here's the key difference. While he looked forward to what felt impossible in this miraculous birth of his son that we'll see in a few chapters' time, we look back. We look back at the arrival of Jesus and see in him the foretaste of our future home. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he wasn't just doing something for that point in time only. That was a down payment on what is coming for everyone who trusts in Jesus throughout history. If you don't feel at home in this world, if its promises have failed you, the things you thought would last forever are falling apart, know today that Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, we can have greater confidence than even Abraham that our forever home is just around the corner. And if that's true, then we can respond to this passage by reorienting our faith around our forever home. I think this has two practical outworkings for all of us. The first is um, don't get distracted by tempting destinations that can't deliver. Instead, Fix your heart on your forever home, your forever home with God. Firstly, very quickly, don't get distracted. It'd be almost unthinkable, wouldn't it, if you were on your way to this kind of dream holiday uh, and you stopped off at this service station for a quick bite to eat and you thought to yourself, you know what, I actually quite like it here. (laughs) Perhaps I'm going to stay. Forget the holiday, forget going home. It's Gloucester services for me. It's really good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I could spend hours looking at weird jams in their farm shop. But, uh, uh, that is precisely the kind of danger we're in whenever we allow the things around us to get their hooks into our souls. We lose sight of the destination and find ourselves living on the road. Lot had everything he needed. He was wealthy with livestock. The promised land was big enough for him and for Abram to spread out a bit without having to leave it. And yet he still felt drawn to the false promises of the world. So, so can I just say, let's not kid ourselves by saying, you know, if only I had X, then I'll be happy. That has never delivered yet for any of us, has it? Don't believe it then. Don't believe it now. This is hard, isn't it? Because for every one of us, when we walk out of this building, we're going to be confronted by almost immediately with countless loud voices that are going to try and sell you your dream life. Don't believe them. Their promises are hollow. They cannot and they will not deliver. Instead, fix your heart 
and your forever home with God. In the face of the loud and the consistent voices you're about to walk into, set your mind and your heart on God's voice. Don't be moved by any other voice. Don't be moved by any other promise of home. While this might sound like just one of those kind of easy-to-say, off-the-cuff Christians kind of sayings, it's essential to the life of faith. It isn't automatic. It, it requires day-by-day day battling to believe what God has said. It's the two steps forward, one step back, life of the struggling believer. That is the life of faith. But we can help each other on that journey. And we can remember God's promises. Remember how Johnny described those promises to us that God made to Abraham, last chapter, God's people in God's place, enjoying God's blessing. That's not just a promise for Abraham. It's the promise of the whole of the Bible from beginning to end. That means that this is our promise this morning. Right here in E.R. Mason News Center on a Sunday morning, if you look around just for a second, you will see God's people in God's place enjoying his blessing. Believe it or not, the Gate Church is part of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham thousands of years ago. God has not only remained faithful to Abraham and his promises, he remained faithful to his promises through Abraham to us. We can remember his promises, but we can also invest in our future home. It barely needs to be said, does it, that whatever captivates our hearts captivates the rest of us. Like when something thrills us, it fills us, doesn't it? That all of us. I, I think I, some of us might have like Pinterest boards with like home deco inspiration, um, or maybe if you if you if you got engaged, you had a similar one for like your dream wedding or something like that. Or you've got that Monzo pot that's putting money away for the holiday month after month after month, the one that you're daydreaming about and have been for the past six months. This isn't a bad thing, by the way. It's it's how we're made. We're made to be excited, not just in one, one aspect of our personality, but the whole of ourselves. We're made to be fully engaged in the thing that captivate our hearts. But what would it look like if our forever home, the one that God promises us, captivated us in that same way? What sacrifices would we be willing to make to see the kingdom of God become an increasingly visible reality here? Would we be willing to forgo a rare night in on a Wednesday evening to go and pray with God's people for the sake of this community? Would we be willing to be here, to do life here, even if it means that the school that our kids go to isn't as good as the one that they could have gone to? Would you be willing, when you think about your finances, to consider God's desire to bring every tribe, every tongue, and every nation into a restored relationship with him as the one of the most obvious and most secure investment opportunities you could ever make? We can't just make ourselves want these things, can we? We, can't, we need to begin by captivating our hearts. And just as Abraham begins and ends this chapter by worshipping the true and the living God in the face of the false gods of his neighbors, what would it look like for us to worship him in this way? As I close, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to do what we've done so many times on a Sunday morning. We're going to sing. As we sing this morning, it's 
This is an opportunity for defiant worship. It's an opportunity to defy the power and the authority of the false gods and the false stories and the empty promises that this world offers. It's an opportunity to confess together the inadequacy of the places that we've turned to or that we're tempted to look to for security. It's a prayer that God would impress these opportunities and these promises into our hearts. It's also an opportunity to declare to ourselves and to each other today that our greatest need, the greatest need for the entire world, is Jesus. So why don't I pray for us, and then shall we do those things together? Paul writes, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts you've given us. We thank you for the many blessings that we see. Uh, the many blessings that we experience. Thank you that those come from you because you are kind and generous. But we want to ask that you would cause those things to look beyond them to you, the giver of good gifts and the only secure home. That you would lift our hearts to worship you and to proclaim you as our greatest good this morning and going out into the week. In Jesus' name, amen.